Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. And suddenly, it is September of 2022. I don't know where this year has gone. I'm still writing 2020 on my checks. The important part of that particular reference is that I'm still writing checks. That gives you some idea how old school I am. When we were doing our systematic theology on Wednesday nights years ago, we spent time talking about the nature and character of God during theology proper. We talked about aspects of God's character that so much of the modern church world just seems to have forgotten. They just don't talk about it anymore. Once upon a time, preachers were known for their fiery temperaments. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Who was that? Uh, Jonathan Jonathan Edwards. That, once upon a time, was part of biblical preaching. Warning people, not only that God is a loving God, but also warning that he is a wrathful, vengeful, jealous God. And that aspect, that character of God, has all but been forgotten in the modern church. The very same John who wrote the book of Revelation also is the John who told us that God is love. But I have argued for years and years that we have to pay attention to the biblical balance in the description of the character and the nature of God, because what we're about to bump into in the book of Revelation is John talking about God pouring out his wrath. And what's interesting about it is that as he is pouring out his wrath, he's being worshipped. He is being celebrated as the God who has this kind of holy wrath. So while it is true that God is love, and we admit that God is love, but you have to make a distinction when you say God is love. Don't say it backwards, because love is not God. But people deify love until they think that that is the primary characteristic of God, and that God only reacts to people through love. It is true that to his people... He is a loving God. Thankfully, a God who identifies himself as having loving kindness. But he is also a wrathful, vengeful God. And when you eliminate that characteristic, you fail to warn sinners that they are indeed going to fall into the hands of that righteous, holy, judgmental God. So you're not giving people a full and biblical sense 
of who Yahweh actually is when you emphasize one part of his character above all the other parts of his character. So just so we have some sense of where we are now in Revelation 15, back in Revelation 14, we saw the outcome of those who had actually worshipped the beast, taken his mark in their right hand and their forehead. Starting in chapter 14, verse 9, we read of them. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or upon his right hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. So in that verse, we hear that God is a wrathful God, that he is an angry God, and that he is a tormenting God because those people will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Then by contrast, verse 12 says, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and they keep their faith in Jesus Christ. So at this point in Revelation, there are two very distinct groups. There is the group that God has turned over to a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie and be condemned. That group does worship the beast, does take the mark, does fall under the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength, not diluted in any way. In chapter 15, then, we read about those who overcame. Chapter 15, verse 2, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name. And they were standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And then over the course of the last two weeks, we've looked at the song of Moses that they sing and the song of the Lamb that they sing. And the song of the Lamb is a worshipful psalm, even as God is pouring out and preparing the worst of his wrath. In fact, verse 1 says... I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. It's all wrapped up. It's all finalized in what we're about to read. So far, we would have to say that the book of Revelation is full of warnings, full of separation between the saints of God, and those that are going to fall under the punishment of God. And the punishments that we have seen so far, we would have to agree, pretty bad. We'd have to agree we don't want to be here, we don't want to go through what is described in the book of Revelation so far. But God was just getting warmed up. Because now he's going to pour out the seven plagues that are the final seven plagues, so that he can wrap up his demonstration of his wrath. When you think about God, 
everything that God does is part of his revealing of himself. He is telling us and he is showing us what he is like, what his character, what his nature is. So when he loves people, he is demonstrating that that is his character, that is his nature. He is a loving God. Therefore, yes, John says, God is love. Because we human beings, being as sinful and depraved as we are, would not know what love is, nor would we be capable of sacrificial love to other people were it not for the fact that God, who is love, shared some of that with us and allows us to participate in sacrificial love. The reason I keep saying sacrificial love is because God-type love is much more than just emotional love. We know that Paul writes that love never fails. Anybody here ever been in love and had it fail? That'd be pretty much everybody in the room. We all know what it is to see human love failing. But the love of God does not fail because it is based in the unchanging nature and character of God. And that is the love, the sacrificial love, the agape love that defines who God is and what God is like. Equally then, when God demonstrates judgment, he is showing who he is. He is the righteous God. He has a very, very high standard. So that character of righteousness within himself is demonstrated in the fact that he judges people based in his righteousness and in his holiness and in his very high standing. All I'm striving to make clear is that God is demonstrating who he is through the things that he does. When he judges, he's showing who he is. When he loves, he's showing who he is. When he forgives people, he's showing who he is, that he is long-suffering and that he is gracious. And thank God that he is. And when God pours out wrath, he's showing who he is. Because he is eternally righteous and holy, he also has a holy jealousy for those things that belong to him. The earth, the universe, everything in it all belongs to him. And those people who he has chosen since before the foundation of the world, those people who he wrote their names down in the Lamb's book of life, he is jealous over them that they cannot go worship any other god. They cannot pursue any other thing above him. He is primary over everything. And if you don't treat him that way, his jealous anger starts building. And so as the whole world is chasing after other gods, as the whole world considers themselves to be gods who will make their own rules and own standards of righteousness, God becomes jealous. And naturally then, that jealousy culminates in his wrath. He's just demonstrating who he is. And that is not unique to the book of Revelation. That is God all the way through the Bible. He keeps telling us, Old and New Testament, that he is a wrathful, jealous, vengeful God. 
we've just forgotten that. Or we've replaced that with a God of our own imagination, the God that we have made up, the God who is all-loving, all-kind, all-beneficent to all people, the God who just understands the great grandpa up in the sky who is just going to give you some noogies and say, oh, you little nutcase, come on in. That's not the God of the Bible. So we're going to start building up this morning. We're going to start reading at verse 5, or we're going to start building up to the wrath of God being poured out on the planet. All I want to emphasize is that, number one, this is not different for God. This is not an aberration. He did not change his mind and suddenly become a wrathful, vengeful God. And number two, what you're going to see is that the angels in heaven, the four living creatures, and the martyrs in heaven all worship him as he's doing it, and they take sides with him, and they say that because the people of earth are guilty of the bloodshed of the prophets and the saints, that they deserve the wrath of God, which means that the people in heaven not only worship and praise God as he is doing these things, but they get on his side and say, you're right in everything you do, and the people you are pouring your wrath out on deserve it. That's the heavenly declaration. Again, we as human beings, because we like ourselves way too much, we have a tendency to think that when difficulties come in life, or when God does correct us, we think it's not fair. We think we don't deserve it. We ask questions like, why me? And of course, the answer to that question is always, why not not you? Of course you. You're being corrected. And God's wrath, God's judgment, is either used as a corrective tool for his saints during this lifetime, or it is used as a punishment that is eternal in nature. And either way, The denizens of heaven worship God in the doing of it. So we need to get on God's side and recognize that when he pours out wrath on the planet, he's completely right and just to do so. And thank God. You should thank God every day. You should thank God all the time. Thank God that he poured out his wrath on Christ in the place of us all. But either way, his wrath got poured out. Verse 5 then tells us this really interesting event that's going on in heaven. God is in his temple, and God is going to sanctify his temple to the degree that no one else gets to be in his temple while he is sanctifying his temple. God alone is holy enough to stand in the presence of God alone. It's a really fascinating thing. Verse 5 says, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. There's a couple words there. Naos is the word that is translated temple. It means sanctuary. It means the inner part, the most holy place, the holy of holies, 
the place in heaven where God himself resides, of the tabernacle, that word is skene in the Greek, it, it literally means a tent. Because in the Old Testament, the original place where God met with Israel was in the meeting place, the tent of meeting. It was a portable tent that they could set up and take back down and travel with them. And Moses was told on Mount Sinai how to construct that tabernacle in the wilderness. And there was an outer tent, and then there was an inner tent, which was known as the holiest place, the holy of holies. And what we're told here is that in heaven... There is a temple to God, and there is a holiest place. Turn to the book of Hebrews for just a moment. Turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter 8. We're just going to read the first seven verses. Because even the writer of Hebrews, looking back on the way that God instructed Moses to build this tabernacle, the writer of Hebrews sees in that that it was all a type and a shadow of what is true in heaven. These are earthly representations of the heavenly reality. Chapter 8, verse 1 of the book of Hebrews says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, which Yahweh pitched, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest, speaking of Christ, also have something to offer. Now, if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, he was told, See that you make all these things according to the pattern which has been shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained, Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry for as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Moses was on the mountain, he got specific instructions from God about how to build the tabernacle, what all the dimensions were going to be, what the furniture was going to be, where the furniture was going to be placed, and even when the priest could come into the tabernacle once a year on the Day of Atonement, the kind of blood that he had to have, the kind of clothes that he had to have, that he had to be wearing a white turban with a golden plate that said, holiness to the Lord. And if any of that was done wrongly, God threatened to kill the priest. So when it comes to human beings approaching the holiest place of God, God gets to dictate all the terms the writer of Hebrews and John in the Revelation tell us that there is in heaven a holiest place and a tabernacle just like what Moses was representing all those years ago in the tabernacle in the wilderness. 
so much of what we read in the law is actually foreshadowing heavenly realities. John is seeing these heavenly realities now playing out. I'm back in Revelation. After these things I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent or the cloth hut, the tabernacle of the testimony. You should know by now that that word testimony is marturion, a form of marturius. It's the same word from which we get martyr. It is the tabernacle of the witness of God that is demonstrated in laying your life down for the sake of God and his testimony. So with all those words in mind, what John saw was a heavenly temple, and in that heavenly sanctuary is a holy place, and in that holy place there is witness, there is testimony, there is marturios going on in heaven, and that temple was opened so that John could see into it. I just can't even fathom that. I'm trying to describe it to you based on what John has said and based on what we know of the Bible, but I can't even imagine the place where God himself sits in his holiness encased in his own worship of himself. And then he opens the doors enough for John to get a look at what's going on in there. And here's what happened. Verse 6, and the seven angels who had seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures, we met them earlier in the book of Revelation. We've also met them in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. There are four living creatures that all have four faces each. And one of these four living creatures gave to those seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Look at the contrast. The angels are clean and white. The bowls are gold. It's all clean and holy and righteous. And it contains the wrath of God. The wrath of God is part and parcel of the character and the nature of God. When God pours out his wrath, when God pours out his anger, when God pours out his fury, nothing about his righteous, holy purity changes at all. He is completely right and holy even in his judgments. And that is typified in the fact that there are seven angels White and clean, pure, holy. And they're given seven golden bowls. And if you didn't know what those seven golden bowls were full of, you would look at that picture and think, what a lovely picture. White and glorious, beautiful angels holding golden bowls. But inside the golden bowls is the very wrath of God ready to be poured out on the planet. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. John one more time felt it was necessary to define the God he's talking about. 
He's the God who lives forever and ever. He's the God who made heaven and earth. He is the self-existent, always is, always was, always going to be God. And this is his wrath. This is not the wrath of human beings. This is not the wrath of angels. This is the wrath that comes directly from the holy God who is in his temple, in his own tabernacle, in his own holiest place, preparing his wrath. And so you have to keep seeing that these two ideas of holiness, righteousness, and this idea of wrath, these are not contrary ideas. It is one and the same God demonstrating what he's like, demonstrating his character, and nothing about his holiness or his righteousness changes one bit when he pours out this kind of anger and wrath on human beings. And what we're going to see again is that the human beings who receive this wrath end up cursing him. They don't repent. They don't change their mind. They don't choose him. They don't make him Lord and Savior. Instead, they blaspheme the name of God and get angry at God for doing this to them. Because human conception of God and what he is like is that God should do nothing but good for us. God should just give us stuff, take care of us. And when God demonstrates who he is in his completeness, people don't like it. And that's why it's been changed, even within the church, shamefully, it has been changed to redefining God away from his anger, away from warning people about the wrath of God. And instead, it is just love, 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 all love, love all the time. <coughs> One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, the God who lives forever and ever. And then God sanctifies his own place, his own holy tabernacle. Verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his dunamis, from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. As God is pouring out his wrath on the planet, he is residing by himself singularly in his temple, and nobody else gets to come in. What a picture of a completely other God, of a God who would say, even my name is so hallowed that it is different than you. It is higher than you. It is better than you. That's why he can say, don't take my name in vain. This is the God who can say, there are no other gods. No one else exists. I'm the God who is. I am because I am. He's the God who can say, no other idols, no other worship is going to be accepted except my worship, and I am the one who has established my own righteous temple, and there is no one else who can purify, who can cleanse my own temple except me. So I'm going to purify my temple, myself, I'm going to glorify myself, and no one, no created being anywhere gets to come in when I do that. That's a God who is holy, completely other. 
That's why God can say, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. That's a God who does truly, genuinely, whatever he wants, and can't nobody stop him. Now, you should be familiar with that idea of smoke filling the temple. If you look back in Exodus 40, the same thing happened when Moses built that original tabernacle in the wilderness. Once it was constructed, once the priesthood was assigned, once the Levites all understood what their responsibilities were going to be, in Exodus 40, starting at verse 34, we read, And then a cloud, the cloud of God, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Okay, a minute ago, Moses could go in there. Moses is the one who's constructing it. Moses brought the furniture in. Moses and the priests put everything in place. Moses sets the whole thing up. He's allowed. He and Aaron, the high priest, they're allowed. They can go in the tent. They're the ones who set up the Holy of Holies. They're the ones who are responsible for putting the Ark of the Covenant in its proper place. And they're allowed to do all that until the moment that the cloud of God appears. And when the smoke of the presence of God appears, nobody gets to go in the tabernacle. That's how God has always been. That's how he was in the book of Exodus. That's how he is in the book of Numbers. That's how he is in the book of Revelation. When God is in purifying mode... There is nothing else pure enough to be in his presence during that purifying process. That's how pure God is. It's hard for us to imagine a God who is that singular and a God who is that completely holy and righteous. You're probably familiar with Isaiah 6. That's the passage that starts in the year that King Uzziah died. But once again, Isaiah is going to see God producing this smoke, this purifying smoke in heaven. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out, while the house of God was filling with smoke. And then Isaiah's reaction was completely normal and natural because he sees God in his purifying of heaven itself and of his own temple. And Isaiah says, good, it's a good thing I'm here. I'm ready for a party. Hi, God, how you doing? <laughs> no, what you read is Isaiah said, woe is me, 
for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Why was he afraid of his own impurity? Because he was witnessing the purifying of God. And in that environment, nobody can stand. That's my point. Whether it's Moses, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's John here, whether it's all the denizens of heaven who we would have to say we think are probably pretty clean, pretty purified. I mean, after all, they're in heaven. And they aren't pure enough to stand in the temple with God as he is demonstrating his otherness, his perfection, his level of holiness. And nobody can stand with him. That, by the way, if that gives you some chills, if that gives you some sense of the separateness between you and him, that should give you awe of the God that you worship. And the more you understand the character and the nature of a God who is holy and righteous and wrathful and vengeful and jealous and loving and gracious and kind and long-suffering, the more you understand the whole nature of God, the more capable you are of actually worshiping God in spirit and in truth because you're worshiping the whole of who God is. And the more you know that he's fully willing to pour out his wrath, even as Paul says in the book of Romans, he's willing to demonstrate his wrath on the people of earth. The more you recognize that, the more thankful you should be that he's not going to pour out that wrath on you more thankful you should be that Jesus Christ absorbed that wrath on your behalf. And the more you ought to be willing to be like Isaiah and get on your face in front of him and recognize the difference between you. Look, I'm surprised every Sunday, I have to point this out, every Sunday I drive here with the expectation that this might be the week that nobody shows up. That it's just over. And we've had 21 good years and we're done. And I'm surprised. I get here and there's people here. I'm surprised that a God this holy, this righteous, a God with this level of wrath available to him, I'm so surprised that a God like that would be willing to accept someone like me. I have no problem getting down on my face in front of that God. Because I realize that not everyone is going to experience the grace that I have received. And some people are going to receive his wrath. And even in that wrath, as it's being poured out on the planet, they are continually incapable of coming to the love and worship that I've been blessed with. It's astounding to me. Why would God ever accept somebody like you? One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. 
This, as I said, is the character and the nature of God. He is a wrathful God, but he has always been that way. He has always demonstrated himself that way. This is not unique to the book of Revelation. I just don't think people have paid enough attention to the fact that in the Bible, this is the way that God is described continually as being perfectly willing to pour out his wrath. I'm going to start reading in Isaiah 34 as a demonstration of what I'm talking about. We're going to read eight verses. Isaiah 34, starting at verse 1. Isaiah is describing a situation very much like what we're reading here in the book of Revelation. These two passages, I believe, are describing not only the same events, but the same God doing the same thing that he's always been willing to do. Draw near, O nations. We've been talking a lot lately about the fact that Jerusalem is going to rule over the Gentile nations. When Christ comes back, he establishes his kingdom, and he rules over the nations, over the goyim, over the non-Jews. Now here is Isaiah saying, draw near, O nations, to hear and to pay attention, all you people. Let the earth hear, as well as its fullness the world, and everything that springs from it. For the indignation of Yahweh is against all the nations, and his wrath is against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be cast out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood and all the hosts of heaven will rot away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and all the hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from a fig tree for my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of Yahweh is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of rams, for Yahweh has a sacrifice in Basra. By the way, that language of Edom and Basra, that's modern Jordan. That's the Middle East. These are the ancient enemies of Israel, the same people who go all the way back to the Edomites. And now God is saying he has prepared for himself a sacrifice to himself and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And wild oxen will also fall with them, and young bulls with the strong ones. And thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust become greasy with fat. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Notice, really interestingly, that within the context of God's vengeance and judgment, he uses the word Redemption. That seems like an unexpected concept right in that context. And yet, as God is pouring out his vengeance 
on the ancient enemies of Israel and on the nations of the world and on all of those who have worshipped the beast or taken his mark. As he's doing that, he is in the process of redeeming his people. He's in the process of establishing his kingdom. He's in the process of protecting his people in order to establish the kingdom that Christ is going to rule over. In other words, the wrath of God is not arbitrary. The wrath of God is purposeful, and the wrath of God is part and parcel of his redemptive work. Since the whole of the Bible is the story of God's redemption, this is part of that. God is redeeming people through his wrath. Boy, that's, that's a mind-blowing concept. Because all of God, every characteristic of God, every part of God is all in keeping with the mind and the purpose of God. It's not like he had a plan to establish his people and redeem some people, but he also just had some anger he needed to blow off. Instead, the anger, the wrath of God is purposeful and accomplishes redemption. Here, Isaiah 63 is going to say it again. And in fact, it's going to talk about the same area that we just read about, Basra and Edom. Isaiah 63, the first six verses. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his clothing, marching in the greatness of his power? So the question is, who is this? We see him coming from Basra. He's majestic in his clothing. He's great in his power. The answer is, it is I who speak in righteousness, and I am mighty to save. Okay, obviously, this is a reference to God in Christ, who is now going to be described as being bloody as he's coming. And yet, notice, he's also the one who is mighty to save. So here's this combination again of the wrath of God being a saving, redemptive wrath. It is I who speak in righteousness, I am mighty to save. Then the question comes, why is your clothing red and why are your garments like one who treads the winepress? By the way, that same language is picked up to describe the wrath of God in the book of Revelation that it is the wine press of the wrath of God. Because in a wine press, people would stomp on grapes, red grapes, until the juices flowed out. By the way, that is the word for beating. That is a word for tribulum. That is the same idea. This wrath of God being poured out to produce blood. In the book of Revelation, in a couple of chapters, chapter 19, we're going to see Christ coming back but his vesture is covered in blood. Same vision, same idea, same language as what Isaiah sees. And Isaiah says, why is your clothing red? And why are your garments like one who treads out the wine press? The answer is, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood 
is sprinkled on my garments and stain all my clothes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. The year of redemption has come. Notice that Jesus, with the blood of the vengeance that he has just poured out, combines that year of vengeance with the idea of the year of his redemption. This concept keeps showing up. Wrath results in redemption. Redemption for some people. Wrath for some people. But always according to the purpose of God who does everything in concert with his own will, his own determination, and what he has already predicted through his prophets. Their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my clothes for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. Again, the combination of words. My own right arm. Christ speaking here says my own power, my own authority. No human being could do what I'm doing. No one could accomplish either my salvation or my punishment or my wrath. No human being can accomplish what God in Christ alone can accomplish. And so he said, since there's no human being to help, there's nobody else to do the work, I did it by myself, by my own authority, by my own power, by my own right arm. I brought salvation to myself. He accomplished salvation all by himself. But as part and parcel of accomplishing that salvation, he also says, my wrath upheld me. So the concept of God's wrath and God's redemptive work continues to be combined. Verse 6. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath. See the combination between wine press, which results in wine, which results in drunken people, which is all part of the wrath of God. I made them drunk in my wrath. That's why they don't understand. That's why they don't conceive. That's why they continue to rebel against God, even as God is pouring out his wrath, because they're drunk, they're stupid, they're mindless, they're not thinking, they don't understand the things of God, and God doesn't allow them to understand. The same way that Paul says in the letter to the Thessalonians that God is going to turn them over to a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that they will be condemned. All the way back here, we have God in Christ saying, I'm going to tread out my wine press and I'm going to make them drunk with my anger as I pour it out. So naturally then in the book of Revelation, as that wrath is being poured out, they, like drunken men, curse God for what he's doing rather than worship God, rather than get on his side. And as I keep saying, everybody in heaven is on God's side. Everybody in heaven is worshiping God as he does it, starting with God, worshiping himself, purifying himself in his own temple. So these ideas of redemption of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the singularity and separateness of God are all intricately connected with the wrath of God in accomplishing the redemption of his people. Mind-blowing stuff. My anger 
has made them drunk in my wrath, and I brought down their lifeblood to the earth. Isaiah is not the only one who describes it. David in the Psalms writes the same thing. Psalm 21. We just recently read it on Wednesday nights. David speaking first person says, For the king trusts in Yahweh. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, the king will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand, your power, will find out those who hate you. And you will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. Notice that both Isaiah and David and John in the Revelation all speak of a particular time, which is why the prophets all speak of the day of the Lord. The wrath of God has a specific moment. God knows when that moment's going to be, and when that time finally comes, God is going to pour out his wrath because it is time for his wrath. You will make them a fiery oven in the time of your anger. Yahweh will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their seed from among the sons of men. And though they intended evil against you and they devised a scheme, they will not succeed for you will make them turn their back and you will aim your bowstring at their faces. Boy, there's an ugly picture. God yanking out his arrows and pointing right at your face. Be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength, and we will sing and praise you for your might. Notice again, the worship of God in the midst of wrath. And God again declares that he has a time of wrath, a day of wrath, a time when he's going to pour out his anger. And it's always couched in this language of bloodshed and destruction. And taking people away completely, taking them off the earth. Psalm 94, 1 says, O Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. There's the way to start a psalm. (laughs) And he says it twice. He identifies Yahweh as the God of vengeance. All I'm trying to do today, I'm not trying to scare the kids. And what I'm trying to do today is just demonstrate who the God of the Bible is and what the God of the Bible is like because, I'll say again, because it can't be overemphasized, if you know that God is like this and that he's perfectly willing to show his wrath, that he's perfectly willing to pour out his judgment on people and somehow you don't fall under that wrath, how thankful should you be? Because this is the character of God. This is the nature of God. It is part and parcel of who God is. Thank God that he's loving. Thank God that he's gracious. But worship God that he is a judging God and he is a wrathful God who is going to pour out every aspect of his complete being. He is going to demonstrate his grace and he is going to demonstrate his wrath. And they are both part and parcel of the same completely separate righteous holy God. And to conceive of the God of the Bible more completely, you have to understand all of that. Because it's said over and over in the Bible. In fact, it's transported into the New Testament. Oh, by the way, I didn't finish Psalm 94.1. 
which says, O Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Be lifted up, O judge of the earth, and render recompense to the proud. So here's David worshiping Yahweh for the fact that he's a judgmental God. So always in the midst of talking about the wrath and the judgment of God, you always see language of worship and praise and lifting up and recognizing and glorifying the God who is wrathful. So you can't separate any portion of his character, any part of his nature, any of his characteristics without coming away with a truncated concept of who God is. In the New Testament, in Romans, Paul writes the very same idea, the very same thing, and he takes the idea of the vengeance of God as being so complete that he says that we human beings are not to take vengeance ourselves because God himself is going to accomplish that. And then we get to the book of Revelation, and as God is preparing to pour out his wrath, he's in his temple by himself because he alone is holy enough to pour out wrath. Here, I'll put it this way. No human being is able to pour out their wrath on somebody else and be justified in the doing. We might get angry. We might get jealous. We might justify ourselves by saying, that person deserves my wrath, deserves my angry, deserves my dirty looks. You, we might think that, but we're wrong. Because we're just as guilty as they are. Only God, holy, righteous God, can pour out holy, righteous wrath. Therefore, the God of heaven, when he pours out his wrath, people worship him in the doing. Oh, not just people. Angels, living creatures, all of heaven, worship him in the pouring out of his wrath. Romans 12, starting at verse 15, says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. By being of the same mind with one another, don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind or in your own conceit. And never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. Because Paul knows the character, the nature of God, that God is also a wrathful and a vengeful God, and that he is going to pour out his wrath. So instead of taking your own revenge, brethren, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that concept of the wrath of God that I've been stressing this morning is even integral to Pauline theology that part of why we behave in a Christian way is our recognition that God is a righteous judge. And since he is the only righteous judge, it's not up to take our own vengeance. God himself will avenge on our behalf. Why? Because he's righteous and holy, and therefore he judges in a righteous and a holy manner. Does that make sense? Yes. 
Okay, so that was just a quick sweep through a couple of passages in the Bible that demonstrate that the God of the book of Revelation is the same God you see through the whole Bible, a God who indeed pours out his wrath, but his wrath is not arbitrary. His wrath and his vengeance have a purpose in the larger plan of God, and that purpose is ultimately the redemption of his people. Does that all make sense? Yes. Well, then we can understand chapter 16, where we will start, apparently, next week. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, the God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Look at chapter 16, verse 5. It's a perfect place to stop. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou who art and who was O Holy One, because you did judge these things, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, because they deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty and true and righteous are thy judgments. That's really all I'm getting at. The wrath and the judgment of God is completely right and true, completely honest, because as the angels say, the people on whom God pours out his wrath deserve it. By the way, so do you. And that really ought to make you grateful. That's the God you worship. Questions? Yes, sir. Uh, I'd just like to hear from you the affirmation um, about our salvation. The, uh, the passages in the Old Testament don't say anything about these, this wrath is not going to be visited on Jesus' sheep. And actually, the passages in Revelation don't say that either. Now, I know... The snatching away is in other parts of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And you've made that clear. But, you know, there's, there's nothing in, in, in this. The, the whole thing about wrath, there's nothing in this that talks about, you know, what you have always said was accomplished 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Right. And so the wrath that you have stressed so much today from the Old Testament and from Revelation doesn't make that clear at all. Yeah, it doesn't make the differentiation. Right. Yeah, I'm going to answer you with one word, and I think you're going to understand. Context. When we read the Bible, we read the whole Bible. We were just reading context this morning about the nature and character of God and his wrath. But like you yourself said, there are other passages that talk about our deliverance and about our snatching away and about... You know, we can go to all the passages about God 
predestining us before the foundation of the world, or of Christ on the cross taking the wrath of God in our place. That's all in the Bible, too. So the difficulty with getting one hour on Sunday mornings is that I have to concentrate on little portions of the Bible at a time and then try to remind people, and oh, yeah, there's all the other stuff we've talked about for 21 years. So it's just it's a matter of context, because even in the Old Testament, you see all these promises of God restoring Israel, Jeremiah talking about the time of Jacob's trouble, but they'll be delivered through it. You see all this language of redemption. That's all in there, too. But this morning, I was just trying to concentrate on getting everybody to understand the character of God and his willingness to pour out his wrath and that he is going to pour out his wrath and how thankful we should be that he's not going to pour out his wrath on us, but that is the only God you find in the Bible. That's a good way to end today. (laughs) Good. Then apparently we're done today. That's it. No other questions. George has declared the end. (laughs) No, it's fine. It's fine. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.